Almighty and everlasting God, increase in us the gifts of faith, hope, and charity, and that we may obtain what you promise, make us love what you command. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. That's the collect appointed for today, October the 24th, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. It's been a, a pretty relaxing week, to be honest with you. I was having a little bit of trouble with my back, so I took a, a week off from the gym. Didn't go at all, all week long. But we had friends over on Wednesday night beginning to do and work on a series on the book of Ruth. And so what I'm doing is getting some people to come along and have just come for a simple dinner on Wednesday night and let me kind of do what I what I'm feeling like, what I'm hearing the Lord say, and and kind of looking at the Jewish roots of that story, and looking at more and more about how that story is so important in um, getting us to Messiah. To be honest with you, it, it it moves us down the road a long way towards getting to David, and it's there's a lot in that story of the Book of Ruth. It's read um, at, at Shavuot, uh, which is the Feast of Booths. Um, it, it was just was like three weeks ago or something like that. And uh, so it's, it's read in the Jewish synagogues during that time. And it's about the ingathering, but it's, it's sort of the ingathering of the Gentiles at some level because Ruth is uh, a Moabite woman. But there's a lot of Jewish sort of rabbinic backstory to, to unpack and kind of look at. And, but there's a lot of connections between the book of Ruth also with the story of Lot and his daughters, as well as Judah and Tamar's story from Genesis. So there's a lot going on there, and, and I'm really looking forward to it. I've done a lot of research on it and listened to a lot of rabbinic teaching, and so I'm excited to do that, probably hoping to start, you know, maybe recording some things with that and, and maybe make it into a video series. So, um Hopefully that'll start soon. We've been just kind of otherwise just sort of you know moving along with life over the last little bit and uh, got a lot done this week. Got got a lot of sort of um, just tasks done, which and I'm not a task person. In fact, I'm exactly the opposite of a task person. So anyway, it's been a good week. It's been you know relaxing more or less. It's things are moving on well and we're you know kind of interested, excited to see what God has for us in the future and see where we're headed with things. So anyway, that's it's a beautiful time here in the mountains. The leaves are changing, and therefore there are lots and lots of people on the Blue Ridge Parkway right now coming here to see the leaves change and all that. So the weather's changing. It's getting a little brisker outside. It's nice to be out walking every day in the in the um temperatures that we're having, which are in the mid-60s, and so it's been a really, really nice time, and I'm, I'm uh, looking forward to the next few weeks as we move towards uh, Advent in the calendar. So I've said this before, but it, it the lectionary in late September begins to change, and, the, and it begins to change to point us in the direction of uh, recognizing that the world about us is not as it should be, and then the, the solution for that being First, the incarnation, Jesus coming into the world and pouring the Holy Spirit out after the resurrection uh, into the world so that the world can then begin to be populated with um, those who are filled with the Holy Spirit. And we're meant to change the world, to bring truth and light into the world. And so it's the preparation for Advent, which is an informal kind of a way of looking at it, but it's true because the lessons point us in that direction. They point us to the need of Jesus. 
and the even the psalm today we're not it doesn't take the the entire psalm is not there um but I'm going to read it for you. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear them and delivers them. So it's a, it's a wonderful beginning. That's Those are the first seven verses. In the eighth verse, I guess I should go ahead and read it too. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. So it, you, could t- you could take that almost as a health and wealth kind of a uh, preaching, right? That, that if, you, if you turn to the Lord in your distress, then everything will get better. The Lord will save you and deliver you, and everything will be perfectly hunky-dory after that and uh so it's it's a beautiful passage but then there there there's there's something missing though right i mean there's something missing from that description and that belief that if you just follow him then everything will be perfect now and the book of job is a strong corrective for that because job does in fact he job follows god so much and loves god so much that god brags on job's love for him and so those first eight verses kind of sound like they're leading in that direction. But then the last four verses that we have of the psalm are, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. So we many are the afflictions of the righteous. I mean, that, that's a message that we just don't often hear anymore. We, we're not prepared for such things. And so when we deal with situations like we have in the world and in America today, with the whole COVID thing and, and so many other situations going on, like, you know, the, the mess that happened in Afghanistan and our withdrawal there and the lives that, that that cost, plus those who were left behind who had been working with America, and we just abandoned them in that place. And then uh, all the supply chain woes that we're dealing with now and the shortages. I mean, you go into stores today and, and for the first time in, in my lifetime, you're seeing shortages of food, actually. Um, but we can't also get a great many other things are not able to get at the moment either. And so we see these things. And, and we, the, has the church prepared us for that? Have, have we been prepared for difficulties or have we mostly been promised a lie um, and so that's the real question. And, and then what is it we're looking for? You know, what is it that, that we need? And are we, are we prepared as Christians to deal with difficult times and, and maintain our faith in the goodness of God and the greatness of God? Or do we let our fears override that and, and then lose heart? And, and we know that some will. We know that that's going to happen. We know that it happened when Jesus was here. And so it, it's a difficult walk. It's, there's no promise that this world and life in this world is going to go smoothly. But the reality is, is that, that as, so long as we continue and persevere in communication and uh, speaking with him, then, then as long as we persevere in that relationship and pursuing that relationship, then, then we know everything will be well eternally. And, and that's the main thing that we need to take comfort in. We need to be those who, who don't live by fear. We live by faith. 
and, and too much right now. I think we're living by fear and not by faith. And we make decisions when we're living in fear. We make decisions that um, that can impact us forever. And, and we can quickly make a decision on something simply based on the fear that we have. And I'm watching that happen in a lot of lives. And then the, that fear overrides everything else. It's troublesome, to say the least, to see people whose lives are being ruled by fear, but, but we do see a lot of that. But, but it's because we believed a lie. We believed the, the promise from some preachers that, that everything in life would be fine if you just follow Jesus. There'd be no problems in life. And we haven't prepared people for suffering and difficulty and to, to be able to witness their faith into that situation. In the passage from Job that we have today in Job 42, the first 17 verses, the Lord, that Job answered the Lord, who, who told him, buck up, big boy. Let's see what answers you've got for me. I'm going to question you now. Uh, he says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. So he believes completely in the sovereignty of God that he can do all things. So he believes in the omnipotence of God and the sovereignty of God that nothing can stop God's will from being done. Who is this that—he's repeating God's question here. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? So he knows God's sovereignty, is what he said, and he knows his omnipotence. And then God asks him, who is it that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I've uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. So while I did know this, I did know about your your omnipotence and your sovereignty— there's a lot of stuff I didn't know. And what's odd is, is that most of what God says to him points to God's sovereignty, and it points to his omnipotence. Were you there when I created these things? Can you explain the, the creation to me? Can you explain the created order to me? Do you have any control, really, over the created order? That, those are the questions that God asked um, Job. And so Job says, I've uttered what I didn't understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. So what is it that he learned? What is it that he, that he picked up along the way? Because, like I said, God points mostly to his sovereignty. But, but there's something else about sovereignty rather than just power in there. Especially when we're talking about God's sovereignty, there's a great mercy, there's a great love, there's a great care and concern for what he's created. God has not abandoned it. In much of what he says, he's pointing to his current action, not to the just the action that, that allowed him to have the power to create all this stuff, but the sustaining of it all, according to his will, is equally important. And, and that's the comfort that Job has from God's speech, is just that, that God has not abandoned his creation. He didn't just wind it up and let it go. So he, he understands God is still living and active in the world. And, and he says, here and I will speak, I will question you, and you make it known to me. And that's, those are, that, he's quoting God. And he said, I'd heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see. Therefore I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. I, I spoke like a fool. But now that I see you, I'd only heard of you before, but now that I see you, everything changes and I see myself for what I am. Job has always maintained his innocence, and now he says, I repent. I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. What does he repent of? He repents of speaking without knowing. 
He repents of, of calling God and into the dock to defend himself in this case. He, he, he understands that suffering actually is a part of life, that, 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 that this world is busted and broken. It's not the way God intended it to be. And after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. It seems odd to hear them being commanded to go and offer a burnt offering to Job. <laughs> um, but this is before the priesthood. This is before any of that. We believe this is one of the earliest books written. And my servant Job shall pray for you, and I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. So Job's magnanimity here and Job's willingness to pray for forgiveness for his friends is an important thing. These friends who have made his suffering worse by accusing him of sin, and now he's called to pray for them. It's an important thing. When we're restored, then it, then it calls for us to be in prayer for those who have persecuted us even. For you've not spoken of me what's right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. So he, he, he didn't deal with them according to their folly. And then the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. Not until he had prayed for his friends. Still something Job had to learn, and that is is that, that it's not enough to be, quote, right. That's not really the point of this life, is being right. It, it's It's being loving. So, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Is that really a replacement for what was taken away from you? No, is the answer, obviously. I mean, you, loss is loss, and he lost children, and he lost stuff, but but the Lord restored to him more than that. Then they came to him as brothers and sisters, and all who had known him before, and ate bread with him in his house, and they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him, and each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. Also had seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first daughter Jemima, and the name of the second Keziah, and the name of the third Karen Huppuk. And in all the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. It's a wonderful ending to the book. So what's the, the, is the lesson of the book then? Hey, if you do all these things and, and then God confronts you and you, you deal with all this loss, and then you're magnanimous when God comes and speaks to you that, that he'll restore everything double and then you know bless you mightily with material things. I don't think so. <laughs> what Job Job didn't consider those children and all this stuff to be a replacement for his children. That, that Job wasn't concerned about that because now that he has met God, he has a different understanding of the world. He has a different understanding of time and space. He has a different understanding of of everything. Because God knows and God cares. And he's there in these things. So he would rather have God than any of the things that he got. He's, he's not demanding any of these things. The Lord just blesses him and gives him these things. Because now Job can have these things in the right way. He can have them um, and God. He can, he can have these things without them controlling him. And it's odd, to say the least, that we don't get the names of his sons, but we do get the names of his daughters. And we're told all about his daughters 
And, and then we're told not only that, but he gives portions of the inheritance to these daughters, which would have been really unusual, because the only cases in which uh, a Jewish person would transfer part of their estate to a daughter would be if they didn't have a son to transfer it to. And if they transferred it to a daughter, then they had to marry somebody from the same tribe in order for inheritance to stay within the tribe. So there would have been a limitation, but here it seems that there's no limitation on this, that Job has done so well, that, and God has blessed him so much that he gives even inheritance to his daughters. And we're told all about these daughters and how wonderful they are. We know nothing about the sons. It's really odd. But but Job learned something here, and what he learned is, is, is that God's in control of all things. All things come of thee, O Lord, and of thine own have we given thee. And it's interesting, because if you remember back to the very beginning of the Job story, the first two times that, that Satan comes before the Lord, and the Lord says, have you seen my servant Job? He's blameless and upright, and there's no one like him in the whole world. And, and Satan says, of course he is. Of course he loves you. You give him everything. everything he's got it made. But take it away from him and then harm him, and he will curse you to your face. And so what we see is that, that Satan learned a lesson here. And the lesson was, not this man Job. He didn't curse God to his face. What he said is, I re- despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes now that I've seen you. So nothing mattered after he had met the Lord, except for that. So you can bet that Job handled the things that he'd been given in a different way. And and the proof of that is he gave part of it away to his daughters. He said, these things don't ultimately matter. I don't want to just enrich my sons. I want to bless. He became a man who was blessing everybody after that. And it started with blessing his friends by praying for them. But we we were intended to be changed. But encounter with God, our priorities are intended to change. Our concerns are intended to change. In the uh, gospel lesson today, Jesus has left um, from up in, in Galilee and is headed to Jerusalem for what we know to be the Waterloo. And so uh, they come to Jericho. Jericho's an interesting place, right? It shouldn't be, because it was not intended to be built back. In fact, the man who decided to build it back, it cost him the lives of two of his sons in order to build it. We're told that um, in Kings. And so here, Jesus comes to Jericho, and, and the reason that Jericho is an interesting place in the, in the New Testament is actually that, that there's two encounters that we see in Jericho, and, and those two encounters are, are the one we're going to read about today, and the second one is Zacchaeus. And in both cases, it's odd because we get their names mentioned. We get the names mentioned of the two people he encounters in Jericho as he's going to Jerusalem, and the first one is this man we meet today, blind Bartimaeus which just means son of Timaeus. And, and so then he meets Zacchaeus in Jericho. It, it's a personal, very personal kind of a, a, an adventure, let's say, in Jericho as he's going to Jerusalem. But so they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with the disciples, a great crowd was with him. Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, which is exactly what Bartimaeus means, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. So he's making an enormous statement of who Jesus is. He's not just saying, hey, you're related to David in the same way that I'm related to my father Timaeus. Because he is the son of Timaeus, but, but he's saying of Jesus that you're the son of David. 
So I'm pointing beyond my own parentage. When I speak of you, I'm, I'm pointing back to who you really are. You're the Messiah. You are the son of David, the one for whom we have been looking. So this son of Timaeus recognizes Jesus not as son of Joseph, but as son of David. And he points to that messianic thing about Jesus based on what he has heard. And so he is acclaiming him as the son of David. And that's going to be exactly what the people chant as he comes in later to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. But here in Jericho, it's one man, one man crying out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, which is exactly what the people are crying when he comes into Jerusalem, Hosanna, Lord, save us. They're asking for mercy. And here, one man in Jericho is asking for mercy, and this son of Timaeus recognizes Jesus as the son of David, the Messiah who would become. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. It's sort of the opposite of what happens when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, right? The crowds are all cheering and chanting for this son of David, this Messiah, and then the Pharisees ask Jesus to rebuke his disciples and tell them to shut up because you're going to create a problem for us with Rome. But here, why would they tell him to be silent? Well, Jesus is an important personage, and you don't want to disturb him as he comes through. And Jesus stopped. He cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he's calling you. So they've been telling him to shut up, and now they tell him, hey, come on, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, because that might have hindered him from getting there quickly enough, right? So he, he throws his cloak off, and he springs up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? Now, we could look at that and think, well, maybe you're not who we thought you were if you don't understand that this is a blind man. But... There's a difference, right? So if you're handicapped in some way and unable to work, then you are free to beg. So he, what he might have wanted was for Jesus to give him some money. It's quite possible that this beggar wanted him to do that because he's not just blind. He's a blind beggar. So what he could be asking is for alms. So Jesus asked, what do you want me to do for you? And it seems in some ways very similar to the story of the man at the pool at Bethesda in um, John 5. The guy that he comes up and he asks him if he wants to be healed. Remember that? And, and so his response is to explain to Jesus why he hasn't been healed. Every time that the pool is disturbed, because that was the sign that the Spirit was there, uh, somebody else gets into the water before I do. And Jesus could have looked at him and said, I didn't really ask you why you hadn't been healed so far. I asked you, do you want to be healed now? And it's a change, a complete and utter change of life if you're going to be healed because now you have responsibility. You have responsibility to work. You have responsibility. Your whole life's going to change. And some of those ways are good. Some of those ways, I mean, it's great that you can suddenly see, but but not everything about that. I mean, it's, it's an easier life because they're, they're, they will allow you to beg, but they'll also support you if you're blind. But there's a also a stigma attached to that. In the same way that, that Job's suffering had a stigma attached to it, and that is there was an assumption that there's something wrong with you 
There's a reason you're blind. And we know that because we know John 9, when the disciples asked, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus says, neither. This is the way it is for the glory of God for this moment. And then we know also that later, afterwards, when the man's proclaiming Jesus is the one who healed him, we know that they thought he was conceived in utter sin. They weren't even trying to split that baby and figure out whose sin it was. We just know you were conceived in utter sin. We really don't care. This was all about that. But, but then how do you explain the healing? If he was conceived in utter sin, what did he do since then that made him worthy of being healed? And now you've got to deal with this guy who's healed, and, and you don't have a great explanation for that. And so here Jesus asks, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man says, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. Which, the way he says it, it sounds like he at one time had sight. Let me recover my sight. That verb would, would lend itself to the interpretation that at one time he had had sight, and now he wants to get it back. And Jesus said to him, go on your way. Your faith has made you well. He didn't touch him. He didn't do anything. He just tells him, go on. You're healed. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. It's a wonderful thing. It's a beautiful healing. I don't know why we get Bartimaeus' name, but it's possible that the reason we get his name is because he's an important figure in the early church. It could equally be true, and, and at the same time be true, that, that you can go verify it at that time. If, you, if Luke, I mean, Mark gives his name here, and so it's, it's quite possible that Bartimaeus was somebody that, that you could go and verify with. Yep, he healed me. And then other people could say, hey, did you ever hear about this guy named Blind Bartimaeus who used to beg in Jericho? Yep, sure did. He was healed by Jesus. And it's a wonderful thing. And you would think, okay, everything now is going to be perfect in Bartimaeus' life, right? But what happens is, what does it say? It says he followed him on the way. What does that mean? Well, he followed him to Jerusalem. And how wonderful it must have seemed on Palm Sunday to come into the town and see the entire city proclaiming Jesus in the same way that he himself had proclaim Jesus, and asking for the same thing that he had asked, which is to save us, have mercy on us. But how horrible one week after that must have been. But Bartimaeus probably was there and saw all of this. He was so attached to Jesus as the one who had healed him. We have to believe that he must have seen all these things. And so the eyes that had been opened. And now surely he came with the idea that everything afterwards is going to be wonderful. It's going to be days of wine and roses. Instead, what he sees is the man who's healed him on a cross just a couple of weeks later. And then that man died on that cross, beaten, bloodied, mocked, spit upon, cursed. It, it, It had to have been horrible. You know, I wish I didn't have my sight anymore. I wish I'd never received it. If this is what's going to happen, but we need to have our eyes opened. We need to have our eyes open to the suffering that, that's all around us. We need to have our eyes open, not just to our own suffering, but to the suffering of humanity because of sin in the world. We need to understand that. And we need to be like Job. We need to be those who now have mercy because we've received mercy. And we need to be in prayer. And we need to understand our place in the world 
and we need to understand the world. We need to have our eyes opened to what the world really is. And it's easy for us to lose sight of that because we can become so prosperous and so fat and happy that we suddenly miss it. I can remember having a conversation with a friend of mine several years ago who was running for mayor of a city, a significant city. And he was a good friend, is a good friend, close friend. Um, And as we talked, he he was in the midst of this race, and he knew he probably wasn't going to win the race. And what he said was, was, John, what I realized is is that I don't have any clue how 99% of the people in this city even live. I have no contact with suffering and pain. He was quite wealthy. He had done very well in his life. And has continued to do well. And God's blessed him mightily. And he has blessed the Lord in return. But at that moment, he realized, I have so divorced myself from from life for most people that I can't relate. And I don't know anybody in those places. I've so isolated myself and insulated myself from this that I have no earthly idea how to relate to most of these people. And, and, and he said, I, I don't even want to win. Because I don't know how to do this. It was the most humbling thing. And he's become a very different man since then. And he was a great man then, but he's greater now. Because of that experience. It was the worst thing he ever did. In some ways, was run for mayor and lose. But at the other, in the, uh, on the other side of that, it was the greatest thing that he ever did too. Because his eyes were opened in the same way Job's eyes were opened. In this Hebrews passage today, it's not going to take long to get through that passage, so don't despair that I'm going to go on forever. (laughs) It's a very straightforward passage. The former priests, the Aaronic priesthood, uh, were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. In other words, their, their death meant there had to be another one. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. And we know that because of the resurrection from the dead. Consequently, he's able to help save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So we know that, that he continues to save us to the uttermost, in other words, to the end and beyond, <laughs> into infinity, into eternity, since he always lives to make intercession for them, us. For it was indeed fitting that he, we should have such a high priest— holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. What is it? That's a lot to unpack, but it's not difficult to unpack it. What does it mean that he's holy? Well, is God's holiness just his righteousness, or is there something more to it than that? Yeah, there is. There's a transcendent quality to his holiness that whatever we think of as holy doesn't even match it. And that's part of the way that the tabernacle and the temple were designed was to express God's holiness, which is his otherness. He's innocent. He is without sin. He is unstained by sin. He is separated from sinners in the sense that, that he stands alone as the only righteous man who has ever lived. And he is exalted above the heavens. And we know that from Revelation 5, when we see all of heaven exalting him and praising him and giving honor and glory and worship to him. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. And the priests were required to do that. There was no assumption that they were perfect. There was no assumption they were without sin. In fact, the assumption is and was always that men are with sin. That's never questioned. I don't think anybody would question that about another human being. That whatever 
however good my life may look, there's a problem. There's a problem there, and there's a, there's, there can be pride, there can be all kinds of things, but we have a blindness towards our own sin because we don't understand the holiness of God. We, we compare ourselves to laterally instead of vertically. So Jesus didn't need to make sacrifices daily, first for his sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself on the cross. That sacrifice was once and for all. And he offered it up on his own. He was a willing sacrifice. And he calls us to be willing sacrifices as well. He calls us to identify with the rest of the world in the same way that he himself identified with us. By immersing ourselves in the life of the world and the suffering of the world. Taking it seriously. Praying for it and doing all we can to alleviate that suffering wherever we have an opportunity. And then closes with, for the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. And in him we stand. In him all our hope is found. We know that he is not just sovereign. He is not just omnipotent. He's more than that. He's a loving father who sent his son to die for us on a cross that he might make it possible for us to spend eternity with him. You've been relieved of the burden of fear for all eternity. So now we can come and bring comfort and hope to those who are in fear. And we can see by everything in the world today that most of the world lives in fear. It's our job to bring hope and light and truth and love in order that in Christ all fear might be gone. Those who speak evilly of him today, those rabid, you know, new atheists and all these others who, who don't pay him any lip service at all, but who, who make some profession of him, can know, as Job did, that there's so much more. And all that so much more is nothing less. Oh, oh, oh.